Whites. You are listening to Marvel's pull list for brand new Marvel Comics on sale April 21st, 2021. Happy 421. I'm Ryan Panagos, aka Dem. <laughs> We are here to tell you all about the brand new Marvel books out this week. We'll give you our picks of the week. We'll tell you about some others and and hand out some awards. And our friend Karis Pollard, she had a bunch of tweets. I wanted to read those before we get into things, Tucker. Karis at A Karis Pollard on Twitter said that Marvel's pull list is stellar. She's been looking forward to Guardians and Darkhawk and Black Cat and Namor. And so she threw out a bunch of pulleys. For last week's Black Cat, she gives a pulley for unexpected British reference and pulls out a panel there of Black Cat chatting it up in Brighton. Karis gives a pulley of unexpected tease to more Darkhawk coming. Very excited about that. And probably the best pulley to be giving out for last week's books, she gives to the King in Black Namor comic, the pulley for hashtag abs of the week. It's hashtag sexy Namor, and that definitely deserves a proper shout out. Cannot agree more. Uh, I wanted to read one more tweet here, Tucker. It is from Rod at Rod, comma, the, and they say, listening to Vita Ayala and Danny Lore, their interview on Marvel's pull list. And ah, I love y'all so much. Thank you for your voice. Hashtag truth, hashtag Marvel, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Rod, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming in, probably for Vita and Danny and our discussion about truth. Hopefully you stick around and listen to more. But um, if you only came in for one, came in for a damn good one. Yeah, one of my favorites. Uh, we've got to give some picks of the week. Tucker, I'm going to start things off with a new number one, part of Reign of X. It is Way of X number one. This is a biggie. It's a really cool one. It is a book headlined by Nightcrawler. It is written by Cy Spurrier, art by Bob Quinn, colors by Yava Tartaglia, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. For anybody who's not reading X-Men comics these days or mutant comics, there's a whole bunch of things that have changed in the last you know, two years where, for the most part, mutants don't necessarily die. They die, but they can be resurrected. So death is not the barrier it once was. And so that really sort of changes a lot. And at the core of it is Nightcrawler not questioning his faith. It's more just like he still has his faith. And what does that mean for him in his new reality and what mutant kind can and does do now? So from there, you're taken to Nightcrawler sort of exploring different thoughts and figuring out ways to go around things and what his place and theology and faith and all different things, how that factors into being a mutant. And then you get cool characters and there's some really interesting stuff happening with Professor Xavier. There's a lot of trips and and various characters here and there and Pixie and like great cast of characters who are showing up. But what really solidified this for me, and I think we've talked about this recently, is Cy Spurrier seeing Cy come back to X-Men books and be able to pull threads from his previous works and remind people that he's so damn good. If you know Cy's work, you know X-Men Legacy and X-Club, you see characters in there, and he does a really great job of balancing weird, silly, outrageous science wackiness with some characters, and then deep, spooky, sad twisted, 
nightmarish stuff with others within the pages of the same book. I don't want to spoil too much because there's great revelations and, and sort of directions that the book goes in. Specifically, there's a question about like someone who has not yet been resurrected and what that means and why they've not been resurrected. I'm being very aloof with this one because I think everybody should give it a chance to read it and to not get too much spoiled for it, but it's great. Bob Quinn, the elements of darkness and spookiness in here, I think Bob really ramps up and crushes throughout this issue. Now we're jumping over to my pick this week, which is The Mighty Valkyries number one, and it is comprised of two stories in it. The first is called Jane's Story, and the second is called New Valkyrie Story. The first is co-written by Jason Aaron and Thorin Grumbeck with art by Mattia de Ulis. The second is written just by Thorin with art by Erica Durso and colors by Marcio Meniz. Letters and production throughout the entire thing are by VC's Joe Sabino. I am just blown away by the work that's being done in so few pages in this issue. It is such incredible stuff. And look, I cannot talk any longer without freaking out about Mattia Deulis's art, how gorgeously photorealistic his art is, how his expressions are so precise, so spot on, his anatomy, all of it. It really, really, really feels cinematic. But I think a bigger part of that, and if you look a little closer, you go, his framing, his panel layouts, the way that he places you within action that's happening is absolutely incredible. Look, this is one of those things that we could go on and on and on about. It's so, so expertly done. I think everyone that's working on this book across the entire team is really operating at such an enormously high level. And then the new Valkyrie story. Very simply, we have a new Valkyrie, a Valkyrie that we've witnessed in the recent past and the work that Jason and Thorin have done together. Like I said at the start, the first story is called Jane's story. This is called New Valkyrie story. It's not the character's name. And that's because this first story here is about the character getting their name back. It is something that has kind of been lost to Asgardian history, Asgardian legend, and how that ties back into the character, the place this character goes, and how important it is to the character is just so exciting. But uh, where we kick things off here is so great. And I think this will be the point, really. I think we'll look back in the future and say that was when we were ratcheting up to the top of that first drop of this roller coaster, where there was all this potential energy that we then, boom, saw converted into kinetic energy, and we were just off for the ride. Two individual stories that, for me, are totally worth the price of admission alone, let alone getting them together. It's just incredible. Yeah. Speaking of incredible things, let's round out our picks this week with Women of Marvel number one. This is a big, honking, wonderful anthology issue. So there's a lot of stories in here. There's a lot of creators involved here. There's an introduction by Louis Simonson, a legendary force in Marvel comic storytelling as a writer, as an editor. So it's cool to have Louise, aka Wheezy, intro the book and really, I think, expose a lot of Marvel readers to new names. There's a lot of folks here who I, I don't know that well either. But we start off, we've got a story by Mariko Tamaki and Peach Momoko. It's a simple 
one pager here, but it's a lot of fun. It's a Lady Deathstrike story. We've got a return of the Captain Carter character from Exiles in here. We've got a Misty Knight story. We've got a She-Hulk story set inside the American Museum of Natural History, which was a lot of fun. We've got a really cool story with Jean Grey uh, having some frustrations with gardening in here. There's uh, a really great story I wanted to point out by Sophie Campbell and Eleonora Carlini and Triona Farrell, which has Farrell, a character I have deep love for. She was a a member of X-Force back in the 90s. Um, She's a cool former Morlock. And alongside Marrow, who's another Morlock, former X-Man, and the two of them kind of meeting for the first time on Krakoa. I thought it was beautifully done. It was a really interesting character study for the two of them, for expectations, for preconceived notions of who others are and fitting into a society. I just, I thought that one was absolutely incredible. That was a really great story. There's a ton of great things to explore in this issue. Great creators across the board. A lot by Mariko, Tamaki, as I mentioned, but a lot of new voices in here, like Nadia Shamas and Skylar Partridge, names I didn't really know, but we get to see also Kaizama, who, you know, knocked our socks off not too long ago with Death's Head. So um, there's going to be something, I think, in here for everybody. And I was also very, very happy uh, because at the end of the book, some of the current women of Marvel, the staffers and creators, got to sound off on some of their favorite women of Marvel. And a number of them gave a little love to Flo Steinberg, fabulous Flo, whom I miss dearly and uh, is just one of the legends, one of the greats. Uh, Absolutely. So much good stuff in there. Talk about worth the price of entry a million times over. Great stuff there. And now as we dive into our fresh floppies for the week across shelves, the first up for our pulley contention is Alien number two and... Whoa, I I thought that first issue was intense. I thought that first issue really captured the spirit of Alien. It really just ramps up the energy in this issue here. It's dark. It's intense. We're getting to know what Philip Kennedy Johnson, Sal and the rest of the creative team are doing right here. It's one of those stories. It's in kind of classic Alien fashion where you have your characters, you're getting to know them, you're seeing their world, their life, and then when it kicks off, boy, oh boy, does it kick off. This gets my belief for just like closing my eyes and shaking my head at like what I'm witnessing on the page. At certain points, I couldn't believe they went there. I couldn't believe what they were doing, and yet they were. Yeah, if you were down for Alien number one, I think you are definitely going to be down for this one as well. We've got Amazing Spider-Man number 64 out this week, and I'm going to give it my pulley for Romeo and Juliet of the week. We've got the uh, sort of tortured love between the Beatle, a.k.a. Janice Lincoln, and Randy Robertson, the son of Robbie Robertson and Janice Lincoln. The Beatle is the daughter of Tombstone. So actually, this issue has a lot of great back and forth with Tombstone and Robbie because they have such great history and it's neat to see that all come together. This also has a cool backup story featuring Doc Ock drawn by Mark Bagley. So hello, that feels super huge. Wait and see where that goes, True Believer. All right, next up we have Avengers number 45 and this is a King in Black tie-in. 
of course it is in this way that of course these characters need to be involved in King and Black, but it is really an amazing juggling act that Jason Aaron is doing here because of the story he's telling there, because of where we're headed in Avengers, where we're headed with Heroes Reborn. I feel like there's so many different things happening here all at the same time. And yet, of course, it's balanced so beautifully. What I loved about this issue in particular is how these kind of side supporting characters of the Avengers, of Jason's Avengers story, are really more and more coming to the forefront of the story that's being told. So Eric Brooks is a perfect example of that. Man-Thing in here is a great example of that. There's a lot to love in this book from the big, huge main title characters through to the threats they're facing, through to the supporting cast. It's really exciting stuff, especially as we head towards Heroes Reborn, which is going to be here quicker than we even know it. So much to enjoy if you're a Jason Aaron fan and certainly if you're an Avengers fan. All right, let's move on to Black Knight Curse of the Ebony Blade. Number two, uh, this one is really cool. It's got lots of stuff about Camelot and the, the secret history of the Black Knight and the Ebony Blade. Obviously, it's all in the title and maybe some other ebony items, but it's going to get my pulley for Let It Go because we've got Elsa in this issue and uh, it's... <laughs> Terrific. And of course, I can only mean Elsa Bloodstone, who shows up in this issue. You see, I had to reach around for that one, but I think <laughs> it worked, dear listener. Any book with Elsa deserves your attention. Oh, yeah, I'm right there with you. And now I'm jumping over to Captain Marvel number 28, which, okay, I think we can talk about it now. Pulley for burgeoning relationship? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I don't know. I don't know of the week of the Marvel Universe, period, for me. This is fun stuff between Carol Danvers and Doc Steve Strange. What a unique combo. But of course, because we're talking about Kelly Thompson here, she just makes it make sense. Of course she does. Because of the depths of emotion, because of the character work that she's done in this series, this is so much fun That's kind of the amazing balancing act of everything that Kelly Thompson writes for me is that simultaneously your heart is being broken and stomped on and crushed, but also you're laughing 99% of the time as it's happening. So yeah, if you're a, if you're a shipper out there, then this is the pulley for you. This is the book for you. Check it out. It is delightful. Yeah. While that's delightful, let's go to something a little bit more grim and gritty with (laughs) Carnage, Black, White, and Blood, number two. There are three stories in this issue. Tucker, what do you think? I feel like the first story in here is sort of a King and Black tie-in. The first story in this book is written by Donny Cates with art by Kyle Holtz and colors by Rochelle Rosenberg. I mentioned that specifically because Kyle just destroys everybody with his art in this storyline. It's one of the most beautiful stories. There's a double-page spread of a carnage shark, and it rules. But I say it's a kind of King and Black tie-in because it sort of sits in the aftermath of King and Black. On top of that, you got a story by the Daredevil creative team, Chip and Marco, doing a a, a wild Spider-Man and uh, carnage storyline that I don't remember ever really seeing in that way. I thought it was really cool and really disturbing. Um, this is, I, I enjoyed this issue more than I did the first one. I will say that. And the first one was, had some cool moments. This one was, was bigger. Yeah. Next up we have champions number six, which really might as well be champions number one in a bunch of ways. So if you're looking to jump on board with champions now is the perfect time because we of course have the 
amazing Luciano Vecchio on art. But then we also have our friend, the aforementioned Danny Lore, jumping on board for writing duties. And I think this is one, as a team book, two, as a cast of youthful characters, just the kind of match made in heaven stuff that you love to see. I think it's something that Danny is so, so perfectly on board for with the voice, with the command of these characters, with the direction that we're going in general. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, do we have a technicolor, madness, wild, crazy, packed to the brim issue for you here. And I think overall, it is a signal to the ambition of the story that we have going on here because there is so much in here, because there's so many different directions that can be explored. So uh, Pulley goes to all the potential of this book, which I think is enormous. So much intrigue, so much exciting stuff happening here. So shout out to Danny, shout out to Luciano, just really, really exciting future in store for champions. Yeah. Um, all right, we've got Eternals number four this week. It is a gorgeous friggin' book. Asad just killing it every issue. Kieran adding tons of lore to everything that's going on here. Uh, there's a lot, a lot happening. There's a great fight between Thanos and some Eternals in here, which it's really great. I'm gonna give my pulley to carved off butt in here because uh, there is a shot of Thanos emerging from like a portal and his butt is cut off. <laughs> Uh, yeah, now we are jumping <laughs> over to sword number five. I'm most struck by the tone that Al is playing with here because it does feel so specific. It feels very different to his other work, certainly his recent work, but it also feels, of course, utterly Al Ewing. And this is one of those stories that I feel like because of its very nature, because it's sword, because it's this cosmic set story with cosmic ambitions, it's looking to the stars for the mutants in so many different ways. It makes me appreciate the little character moments even more than I normally do. And then when you set that in the expanse that this story is set with the stakes that we have here, I think Al is such a master storyteller that he can play with the subtleties in a way that I think would be saved for deep into the run of another book, but that we're just immediately getting into. It just feels so right. And we're so at home here. Also shout out to Valerio Skitty, who is a great, great artist. I also love the interstitial pages that we have going on in here. Just a bunch to love in sword, but I don't know, pulley on this one. We're going to have Al on the show soon. And something that is so fun in reading his books is his final page splashes, which are great. And I think this is another perfect example of that and perfect entry into the Al canon. Yes. Speaking of swords, let's go over to Spider-Woman number 11, because we are introduced to two new bad guys named the Espadas Gamelas, which translates to the Twin Swords. Cool villains that Jess Drew gets to fight throughout this issue. It's a big, long fight sequence. It's friggin' great. Uh, but in true Carla Pacheco fashion, Carla gonna Carla, she's gonna just absolutely break your damn heart in this issue. The last image of this book, I was just like, damn it, Carla, why you gotta do this? Why? Uh, my pulley for this one is gonna go to New Threads because Jessica Drew has a new Spider-Woman costume, which doesn't look new, but has some new functionality. And it's really, really cool. Yeah, totally agreed. 
All right, now we're jumping over to the realm of Star Wars for Star Wars Dr. Afra number nine. My plea has got to go to just Alyssa Wong for how quickly she's made this character her own, for how quickly she's coming to her own in this book, for how quickly I just feel like I'm reading an Alyssa Wong story. This is one of those things where you read it and you go, I feel like Alyssa's been writing comics for 20 years. Uh, we know that's not necessarily the case, but I think it's just so wonderfully balanced and paced. It's all great. This is just a great buddy cop story here where we have Son of Staros and Dr. Aphra running around, getting into hijinks, having classic Star Wars adventure stories. It's so light on its feet. It's so fun. There really is just a ton to love about this series. Yeah. Let's stay out of the Marvel Universe. One more issue with The Trials of Ultraman number two. This one, lots of ultra history and ultra discussions and sort of getting into the lore in this Ultraman story. Uh, I want to give the pulley to big ass, awesome Ultraman splash of the week. There's a shot that Francesco Mana draws of the classic Ultraman leaping, jumping punch thing. It's, it's so classic from the show and to see it on the page and rendered so cool. And so like awesomely it rules. All right, we're wrapping it up this week back in the Mighty Marvel Universe with X-Force number 19. There's some absolutely horrifying things that happen in this issue that are so creepy. There's just individual panels, let alone the story that we're telling, where you just look at it and you go, oh man, oh my God. It really, it rivals Alien number two this week for some of the like freakiest stuff you're going to read. So pulley for that goes to just the general direction that I feel like we're heading in in X-Force, which is, look, it's one of my favorite books out there. And it is certainly a book that didn't hold back right at the start with talk about horrifying stuff. Um, but now we're coming at it from a different angle, a more unique angle. It's it's really, really fascinating to see this this story mature, to see characters like Kid Omega become more and more and more involved. It's just great stuff across the board. Okay. Now, that's what we have for fresh issues headed to your local comic shop this week. And now looking at collections, there is a ton on board, a bunch available if you are interested in the Mutants, Dawn of X Volume 15. We have a Mystique Volume in there. There's an X-Factor Epic Collection, but here's one that Ryan and I have been screaming about a ton. We have the first collection of Black Widow by Kelly Thompson that's called The Ties That Bind. If you want to uh, get that collection and then maybe laminate it or something because it will get wet with tears when you read it and cry all over it. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> over on Marvel Unlimited, uh, we've got a new issue of Immortal Hulk in there. We've got the Chris Claremont anniversary special. Issue two of Sword, which I think is my main one to point to. Sword number two and King of Black Thunderbolts number one. Those are damn great comics. And if you have Marvel Unlimited, go read them right now. And while you're in Marvel Unlimited, you can read a whole bunch of great what if issues because we are talking about some really cool Spider-Man what if stories with Mega Ran. He's a buddy of ours. He's like a nerdcore rapper. He just wrote a book, a sort of memoir of his life. He's done cool stuff with video games. Like he worked on a project for Marvel vs. Capcom 2. He's done cool stuff with wrestling. He's, he's just mega rad. You see what I did there? Mega Ran is Mega Rad. Yes. And he's our guest this week on our reading club. Tucker, what if I told you our guest 
this week was Raheem Jarbo, a.k.a. Megaran. What would you say? <laughs> I would be very excited. That's what I would do. Yeah. Megaran, what's up? How you doing? What's going on, man? I am doing well. You know, working like crazy, trying to keep up with what fun I can with video games, books, anime, wrestling, you know, but also working extremely hard. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. We've had you previously on This Week in Marvel, but now we're here. We're going to talk about some things that are very near and dear to my heart, some what if comics. And you're a big what if guy, right? Absolutely. I can remember just trading what if comics on the bus riding to school. And um, we just loved what if the one off nature, you know, being like, we don't know what's going to happen. And they usually had a lot of like, death you know what i mean they got really dark mm -hmm. so yeah we just like the daringness of it and i mean i think any of our media that we enjoy anytime there's a chance that something completely unexpected can happen we're all about it so that was always the case with the what if books i love talking about a book or a book series like what if because i think just from the entry we know that this guest really knows their stuff do you remember the first time you read a what if issue or what issue that was? And I got to really think back. I don't recall. I mean, I'm a huge Spider-Man guy, so I know it had to be a Spider-Man one. And it may have even been one of the ones that we've gone through. I feel like the 89 run was like my peak comic book time. Mm -hmm. It really may have been the number four mm -hmm. about the alien costume. So I really believe that 89 run is, is my first and then seeing Spider-Man, I was like, all right, I'm all about it. I'm totally in. That 89 run was huge for Ryan. Am I right? Yeah. That. So your yeah. question made me think about the first <laughs> ones that I ever read. So I have a full run of What If, and it, they are kind of the most important comics for me because that 89 run was so crucial, just like you, Raheem, in like mm -hmm. my fandom and really informing me about characters because like what you were talking about the one-off nature gave you a different story, a different universe, and a different set of everything, every issue. And every issue, you get a little snippet of what we know in the Marvel 616, but then you would get another divergent path, and it would sort of like open your eyes to all kinds of stuff. So I pulled the two that I think are the ones that I've, one, read the most, and two, probably got first, which is issue 16 of the 89 run, which is What If Wolverine Battled Conan the Barbarian? which is one of my all-time favorite books. And I've talked about this before, but it has a scene where Conan and Wolverine fight and Wolverine cuts off Conan's hand and then Conan takes his the stump on his wrist and jabs it into burning coals to cauterize the wound and then he keeps fighting. And it's like <laughs> Wolverine that gets thrown to the Hyborian age and just basically gets to live the rest of his life in peace with Red Sonja. And then 17 is what if Craven the Hunter had killed Spider-Man? And I like specifically remember buying that issue and I remember reading it in the store and then buying it and then constantly reading it. Like these are my copies from when I was, I don't know, nine, 10 years old. So these are crucial. When you mentioned riding the bus to school, hanging out with friends, can you just describe the your personal vision of like the culture of comic books? of however you first started getting into it. How how did you even get to the point where you had the interest to pick up a what if issue? I feel like the comics wave just hit so hard at that time. And I had a um, 
friend on the block, my friend Chuck, his older brother, Al, was maybe five years older than us and had a great collection, boxes everywhere. So we'd go to the house and we'd flip through and he had issues from the 60s, issues from the 70s, issues from the 80s. And we would pull them out and just get so into it. I think that's what started it. And then um, it just took over the entire like neighborhood. You know, a kid came around, hey, I got the new Spider-Man. Oh, I got that, you know. And between that, the Marvel superheroes trading cards, I mean, you guys know what what Marvel was doing at that time. I mean, the issues were so amazing. There was a number one coming out every other month and, um, you know, awesome hologram variant covers. And and so we just had to get them all. It was like Pokemon. And so (laughs) my friends were so into like X-Men. Everybody was X-Men, X-Men, X-Men. And so almost as an act of defiance, I was not into X-Men. I was like, "Mm, I'm going to look at this X-Force this X-Factor, this X-Caliber. I really fell in love with X-Factor. That was like my favorite book coming up. And then later I got into the guys who didn't have such amazing powers and that that had more interesting personal stories, like the Spider-Man, it's like the Daredevils. So it slowly like just took over me, you know, to the point where I was just like, it was all about comics. If you didn't have a comic, when you got on the bus to talk about, you know, then what'd you talk about? We had a long, like hour long ride on the bus in the morning to middle school. And, you know, that was it. We had to have something to do during that time. We weren't going to like do homework. So, (laughs) so, you know, (laughs) we just decided to, we would all just pass around comic books and uh, it was just a great time. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm always, no matter who we talk to, no matter what field they work in, I'm so interested in the cross-section between their fandom for Marvel and comics in general and how often at a young age that seems to kind of have fueled something, some like, you know, give this peek into this other world where these things are possible. And I think, I don't know, holding it in your hands and seeing the craft that went into making this thing, I don't know, I I feel like it awakened something in people. Can you define what that process was for you, the cross-section, if any, the inspiration, how these things at an early age, when you were reading, when you were just consuming things, once you started having an output, and once you started creating things, how you were influenced by What If or Marvel Comics in general, what that meant to you in that way? Oh, big time. I mean, just the idea of having a code name, you know, or a secret was like hip hop in a nutshell. Like you couldn't just be Joe Smith from Fifth Street. You know, you had to come up with some cool name. So from the very beginning, you know, my name being Raheem, maybe a cool name, but not a superhero name. So initially, again, it was X Factor, which gave me my first name, which was Random named after the character. And so from there, like a lot of my friends had adopted names, you know, that were very similar to comic characters. And then later seeing like the Wu-Tang Clan and other guys like that, like show their appreciation for comic books. It kind of showed us that maybe it was okay to do this, you know? I had these two independent loves, comics and music, and then video games, the third. But somehow it was taboo to kind of meld them and to use one inspiration in another world. And then once I saw it, you know, through guys like the Wu-Tang and then later MF Doom and uh, Dell and guys like that. And I was like, oh, wait, like we weren't the only guys reading comics. Like everyone was into this at the time. So, so it made it okay. So we really started digging into that creativity that we saw week to week in these comics and started to place that sort of in our music. Like, 
being that it was okay to dream big and to imagine being outside of yourself, you know, and that was, I liken the whole idea of me like freestyling, which is just coming off the top of the head with, with raps as kind of almost like a Bruce Banner moment, you know, for me anyway, where I'll rap for five minutes straight, just words, everything's just coming to me just incredibly. And after it's over, somebody's like, that was awesome. And I'm like, what? What happened? (laughs) I wake up, I'm like cold and naked and like, what happened? (laughs) What did I do? You know? So, yeah, I think that for me, they all happened around the same time. It was just a really, really great moment for media, you know, to all just hit us with, with Nintendo and with Marvel and with the initial like anime that we were able to, to kind of get through like tape trading and things, pro wrestling, just all these things just hit us at once. And I think it inspired literally a generation of creativity that, you know, there's nothing like it since. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. You know, I feel like an old man thinking about it. But, you know, when we when we were kids, I know my group was lucky. We had like six anime tapes. It was like Ninja Scroll and Akira and Fist of the North Star and like a couple of like what are fairly well-known movies now. But they were really hard to get. They were things that we watched over and over again because that was all we had, all we had access to. Kids today, man, they could get anything they want so easily. You Google that <laughs> and you just find it on any streaming site. You just, it's so easy. Yeah. I think it's awesome that they can access it. But yeah, it does. I think for us, it creates so much more of a deeper relationship with the item because of the amount of time we had to look for it. Being able to just press a button on my phone and get anything I want makes me not necessarily appreciate it. So yeah, I think that what you're saying, Ryan, absolutely makes sense to me is that connection of how hard we had to work to get it and how long we had to just live with that one or two things means that it's still with us 20, 30 years later, you know? Yeah. We were recently talking to rapper Bobby Sessions. I heard that great episode. Oh, oh thank you. Oh my God. Too kind. I listen. <laughs> that opened my brain to this idea of a musician, a lyricist, having just a generally different perspective on what they're reading. I think we all think of comics probably first and foremost as an artist's medium, but I'm curious if you feel like you do have a different perspective on the words you read in a comic, on the economy of language that can go into a book. Is that something you think about in a different way, or is it just because you came up in comics and they're kind of second nature to you that it was never really a connection you had to make to begin with. I've definitely made the connection, maybe just kind of coincidentally realizing it. But yeah, that was a great topic in the episode with Bobby. I I love talking about the economy of words and how like we have to make these words count. You get a certain amount of measures, like we can't change that. And in, in music, you are confined, just like in comics, you're confined to that page. So you have to make it count. You can't waste time, but you also have to do enough to immerse the reader. So same thing with with music. And um, I started off writing poetry before that and then short stories, and then it led to music. So through that entire time, I remember my fifth grade teacher, Miss Levinson saying, you know, Raheem, these are great stories, but it's just a little too wordy. It's taking you a little too long to get to the point. And I'm like, but we gotta set it up. You know, it's world building before I knew what that was. And so from there is when I kind of learned the economy of words, as you said, and it's like, uh, so that's definitely something that I think comics helped to reinforce for me. It's to me still incredible that even as reading through these, that a 
I don't know, 28 page book can still elicit so much emotion from me. And I, I have to give like the ultimate props. It's like when I read this stuff, it's like literally watching the Avengers, like the Avengers just swooped down and just fought in front of me. And I'm like, <laughs> how did what? what you know what I mean like these are the adventures of writing you know so it's like creating such an awesome universe within such a small amount of time based on sometimes the, the knowledge that I already have but sometimes the knowledge I don't have you know and I think that that was a part of what if for me is that occasionally and I think it happens in most of these books where you wind up seeing other characters and they may not be characters that I necessarily follow, but now I'm learning about them. Maybe I want to go read about them some more. And in that slight amount of time, I get enough information to know how they are connected to this world and this story and why they're important. And so it's always been on my mind. And I think comics has definitely influenced that. What you were talking about, Raheem, is a perfect segue into actually diving into these books because the economy of, of storytelling is so apparent in a what if issue because for the most part, there are a couple of connected stories, particularly in the second volume. For the most part, these are all stories that are meant to be told in one issue in anywhere from 15 to 25 pages. And there's so much that you need to do in a what if story. You know, you in most of these, the first one or two pages has to introduce one, our main storyteller, who is the watcher, who is, you know, Uatu, the big bald baby man from space and like what his deal is. He has to tell you that he has to basically explain that he's, you know, breaking the fourth wall and observing things. And he has to then give you a recap of what we know as readers or in many cases don't know as readers new to these stories, of what has happened in the Marvel universe proper and then has to start and set you up for the divergent path. And so for anybody who is listening, who has never read a What If comic, please read these. These are all on Marvel Unlimited. We're going to go through five different issues. But the idea is you take a specific point, a key point in a character or a team or something in the Marvel universe in that history, and you change something and you see the sort of butterfly effect of what happens when something different happens. And so the first one we're talking about is what if number 30, there's actually two stories in here. The second story, I don't want to dive into too much. It's actually a, a great inhuman story about the history of the Marvel universe, but this came out in September of 1981. And the conceit is what if Spider-Man's clone had lived, which is great because what, 13, 15 years later or something like that, they really ran with it when we did the clone saga. But this storyline basically says, you know, you have the two clones that they fought in the 1970s. And what happens if instead of that clone dying in the original story, he lived, this is a possible future. And it's really great. I actually, as you were mentioning, Raheem, you, like there are certain things that can get you emotional in these stories. There's beats in these stories where you see the, the true emotion of these characters and how their lives change. And because we know them so well from years and years of reading Peter Parker stories, when you see what could have been or what if this had happened, there's a real emotional connection to these possibilities. There are heartbreaking moments throughout these. That was something I wrote down was like, there's a lot of sadness here in a lot of these. <laughs> <laughs> but this one introduces the idea of cloning, not just in a, a physical form, but cloning body and mind, which sounds terrifying to me, but also intriguing 
And so I wanted to ask you guys, if the possibility were there, would you clone yourself, body and mind? Yes. Yes. All right. I absolutely would. Right. I want to give more time to my daughter. I want to give more time to my wife. I want to give more time to my job. I want to give more time to myself. Give me five of me and we'll have a great time. Tucker, you have not chimed in. (laughs) That is a instinctually immediately a no for me because I'm like, forget the clone feeling like I am a clone of Peter Parker. That moment in this issue number 30. I fear that I would be like, wait a minute, am I the clone? Is that the actual real one? Why is the real clone holding my girlfriend's hand? Am I the imposter? <laughs> what is going on? It could uh, lead to some confusion for sure. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to. Have I would have to. There'd be, yeah, there'd be some like nighttime, like me digging a hole in the backyard. That's where this would end. I guarantee it. So I think I have to avoid that at all costs. You've introduced a new fear for me. I'm scared. Well, that's good. Hopefully you can come to terms with your clone like the the clone does in here where Peter Parker, because like this one is a rare what if issue, which it has like an almost like happy ending, even though they go through a bunch of traumatic stuff. I love the idea that this clone had the memories and, and like everything, but up to a certain point. So he's like, he doesn't understand that like the time has passed and he's trying to adjust to it. And, like that sense of anxiety, I think is so palpable in here. This, this issue was written by Bill Flanagan with art by Rich Buckler, Jim Mooney and Pablo Marcos colors by uh, George Rosas and letters by Rich Parker. It was a really cool issue. I hadn't read this in probably 20 years. Mm-hmm. I got to say that opening page, literally page one, he says, like, as he's watching two Spider-Mans fight, we have Uatu in the background. Gwen is looking scared over to the side. Then we have Miles Warren with his, like, creepy fitted green polo shirt and mustache. <laughs> and what he says really just stuck with me because he says, ha ha, not even I can tell which is the real Spider-Man and which is the clone. And just like, this guy is a creep. He's like, I've created a situation so messed up that even I'm confused. I, even like, I don't know what's going on. And I can't control it. It's just something. About, I think maybe if he looked like a normal man, it would have read differently to me. But like, he's so like of the era in terms of his looks. I couldn't help it. I hate his like claw nails. Yeah. It's just like a regular guy. But like, those are really intense nails. And he cloned Gwen Stacy in order to be with Gwen Stacy romantically She's 16, 17, or whatever she is at that point. Like, that is illegal. That is immoral. Miles Warren is a bad dude. Wrong on so many levels. Oh, man. Not just his fashion choices. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we do have, we have four Spider-Man themed issues here uh, because Raheem, you're such a big Spider-Man fan. We wanted to make sure we hit a bunch of those Spidey issues. But before we get into further Spideys, I want to hit on uh, another one we're talking about, which is issue number 31. The next issue in the 1970s AD series, uh, which is a dynamite issue. What if Wolverine had killed the Hulk? And remember the times that these are created. This is 1981, and so Wolverine has only been around for six, seven years, whatever it is. So, like, Wolverine doesn't have the breadth of character that he has now. And so, you know, they're only working within some confines of who we know the character to be. But it's a great story. Yeah, this one was great. The end, I don't want to give it away because it gets really uh, gruesome. But it's always been 
literally a what if that my friends and I have always thought like Magneto can control metal. Wolverine's bones are metal. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, so we always just thought like that should happen at some point. <laughs> so, yeah. so seeing it was like, whoa. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause in this, this Wolverine story, he dies, Hulk dies, other characters die. You know, I won't get too deep into it, but it's cool because it's a possible reality. And I think that's part of the wonderful aspect of what ifs for me is it frees you from worrying about the continuity, worrying about the like, well, you know, Wolverine wouldn't die. Da, 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 da. It's okay. It's all right. Like this reality, this happened. And because this happened, this other thing happened. And then this other thing happened. And then this other thing happened. And you get a really captivating story. And this issue, issue number 31, actually has a second story in it, which is what if there was no Fantastic Four? Dude, this was so sad. Right? Oh, man. (laughs) This one, I was like, no, no. It's so good because it's not like, oh, the Fantastic Four died in in their ship or whatever. It's a really simple change. It's that Ben Grimm was having an extra bad day in this reality, and he was really upset by what happened to him. We know he was upset in the main Marvel reality of being turned into this monstrous rocky form, but in here, it's just too much. And that slight deviation causes him to go away from the rest of the FF. So they never turn into a team. Because the FF aren't there, certain things start changing, and it's this domino effect that I was like, no, like this universe suffers so greatly because of Ben Grimm deciding like he just didn't want to be a part of this thing with his friends. I loved this story. Yeah, this was great. I was just like, no, come on. No, no. Oh. When, uh, Alicia, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, like Alicia just becomes a fleeting moment, yeah. you know, and like every person that we love just doesn't become what we think that they were. So it's, yeah, this was great. As we're talking about these things, I also want to shunt through time real quick from the 1980s to today, just for some perspective here, because there's a lot of sad stuff that happened in these issues, like we keep saying. Are you drawn to like like a really emotional, hardcore, heartfelt story where like the heart is one on the sleeve? Are, are you draw, drawn naturally to those kind of stories? Is that just kind of what happened to happen this time? And what are you reading right now? I think it just kind of happened to be that way this time. I try to keep it pretty lighthearted yeah. if I can, you know? Yeah, I'm into like fun stuff, Squirrel Girl and all that, you know? I like the Black Panther stuff, which gets a little, I guess, a little heavy as well. So yeah, that's mostly what I'm reading these days, but I don't know exactly what drew me to this, but I think <laughs> that this is a moment where kind of a switch turn, you know, for me as a kid at the time reading this to realizing that comic books can get, kind of heavy, you know? And so like thinking about the what ifs here, just seeing the level of depth that these things could go to early on, like really showed me what comics and what art in general could do. So some people say that that happens in my music. I I tell some stories that are kind of gut-wrenching and through my own book that I just finished, there's a lot of stories that are, you know, that could be looked at as tragic or, or traumatic events, but in the vein of comics, they're all a part of my origin story, you know, having that tragic or that tough moment that you were able to somehow get through is, you know, what 
helps propel the rest of the story. So, so yeah, it wasn't intentional. <laughs> Raheem, the book you're mentioning, are you talking about Dream Master, a memoir from the stoop to the stage to the stars? I am. That is the book that is available at dreammasterbook.com. If you're interested anywhere you get books, it is a 250 page memoir about my life through pop culture, basically through what comic books, movies, anime, video games have done in addition to my life as a musician and a teacher and how all those things tied together. And um, it's a fun read. Yeah. Let's move on to the last issue of the 1970s run. It actually came out in May of 1984. It's issue number 46. And this one is What If Spider-Man's Uncle Ben Had Lived? And this one, I had the most visceral, emotional moments reading this story because the sort of the origin of Spider-Man is so well-known. We understand that sense of power and responsibility is so important because of what happened to Uncle Ben. But in this storyline, instead of Uncle Ben waking up and going and seeing the thief in the house, it's May who does and May gets killed. And you have this three panel sequence where Ben is holding May as she's dying and it's brutal. And then there's a bunch of pages later where Peter has got this, the grief is destroying him and is so sad and he's dealing with Spider-Man and he doesn't have the same versions of the lessons that Uncle Ben had with him because they're it's sort of like an ongoing process, not this like set in stone power and responsibility thing. He has this moment where he's like, he had to reveal that he's Spider-Man to his uncle who figures it out. And there's this one panel, top left corner. He's there and he's sobbing on Ben's shoulder. And Uncle Ben says, Peter. And Peter says, it's been so hard, Uncle Ben, so hard. And the way it's framed is like, the background is all like grayed out and there's a spotlight on them and it's a really simple, elegant panel. And I thought that was really wonderful storytelling to show what these characters are going through and how this world has changed them in subtle ways, but really emotional ways. And we don't think about this. Like, I don't see this tackled a lot. It's like how difficult it is to keep this secret. You know, I'm always thinking, okay, how can you get great grades? How can you date? How can you have a social life? And how can you beat up bad guys? How do you balance all this, you know, and make it look so easy and wisecracking the whole way? But finally, we get a moment, a human moment where he's just like, it's so hard. Finally, I was like, yeah, it is so hard. Like, talk about it, Pete. You know, so that was a great moment. I want to give a shout out, of course, to the writer, Peter B. Gillis, who wrote a bunch of the last issues of this run of What Ifs, and penciler, legendary Ron Friends, who's done so much Spider-Man work and Spider-Girl work and uh, inked by Sam De La Rosa, letters by Jack Morrell, colors by Bob Sharon. It's it's a really great issue. I didn't know if it was possible to hate J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> but in this issue, I was just like, okay. I really don't like this guy. <laughs> it was, yeah. And I felt like Uncle Ben was a bit of a drag. I guess just based on the fact that I didn't know a lot about him before, we get power and responsibility, we get the quote, and, and you know, that's it. But now we get that quote dragged throughout, you know, the entire episode is a little heavy. I felt like, okay, Uncle Ben, we get it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I love how he told off Flash, though. That was great. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, let's get into the 1989 series. We're going to be talking about issues four and 17. We'll start with number four, which is what if the alien costume had possessed Spider-Man? 
This is crucial for a number of reasons. First of which, this came out in June of 1989, so we're only a few years removed from the core of the black suit like Saga from Secret Wars. Venom is red hot right now. Spider-Man is like all over the place. It's written by Danny Fingeroth. It is penciled by the legendary Mark Bagley. And this is really interesting because this is within the first 10 issues of Spider-Man comics that Mark has ever drawn. And at this point, over 30 years into his career now, he's drawn probably close to 150 Spider-Man comics. He's done more Spider-Man art-wise than I think anybody else. And he's one of the greatest artists of all time. Mark Bagley doing this two-ish years into his career within the first 10 issues of his Spider-Man run. It's it's really something amazing to me to see him at this point. Inks by Keith Williams, letters by Ken Lopez, colors by Tom Vincent. This one is more of the ilk when I think of a, a what-if story. And what you were talking about earlier, Raheem, was like, everything's terrible and everyone's upset and the world is awful and oh my god everything's sad because of whatever's happening here this is a brutal one i love it there's some heartbreaking moments for sure i mean seeing peter old and then oh gosh having to talk to aunt may oh man it was it was rough it was rough that venomized thor yeah moment was so cool that was one that like broke through in a different way for me where i was like if i saw this now i would freak out yeah. let alone when this issue came out. It was so cool. The Peter Parker moments in here, especially when you like realize what happens to him within the suit, I think are the most effective for me. Man, uh, gut-wrenching. And like, just, just seeing, and I didn't think, I mean, I guess we saw Peter old, but I didn't think goodbye at the end, you know, this was goodbye. You know what I mean? And it, it yeah, so it, it hit me so hard. Hell yeah. <laughs> that leads us to our final issue for this chat, which is what if number 17? What if Craven the Hunter had killed Spider-Man, written and drawn by Richard Howell, inks by the amazing legendary Marie Severin, letters by Diana Albers, colors by Nell Yantov. Richard Howell drew the Vision and the Scarlet Witch story the limited series from the mid-1980s. So that's where you might know his work from, most importantly for Marvel, at least he's done a bunch of other things. But you can see the glory that is Marie Severin in the inks throughout this issue, especially like the third page in here has Craven the Hunter triumphant and like dancing. And it's just, it's both completely absurd, but also twisted and upsetting and so dark and cool. I love this stuff. Yeah, this one pops, man. I really love the inks here. I think it like rains through the majority of this one. And I love how that's also like a character. It's like the yeah. rain continues. But yeah, the color and the mood here is just perfect. And this is one of my favorites of the bunch. I also got to say that cover, I think Spidey should be glad he's dead there because he has an angle right up Craven's leopard print shorts i don't know i want to call it a loin cloth it's yeah like, yeah uh, yeah yeah around yeah. the groin but it's all the loins and it's <laughs> it's right there <laughs> like he's posing so perfectly right above him it's disrespectful but it's also a dynamic cover by john ramita jr who is back at marvel now yeah so excited this is another one that had some powerful moments aunt may talking to mj telling him Peter's identity and her just rejecting it. And uh, man, it's a quote. She said, that's worse than telling me he's dead. Is that telling me that he's been lying to me for his whole life? And I was like, oh, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, wow. Like that's some writing right there. Yeah. Whew. And shout out to Richard Howell's big, fat, chubby Uatu baby. I love it. I love every artist has a slightly different interpretation of what Uatu looks like. And I'm here for it. Cause like, if you think about it, the watcher should be an enigmatic space being who maybe everybody perceives slightly differently, but that's just me. I yeah. thought about this a lot. <laughs> for sure. So this is another kind of sad one, but like, you know, the Avengers get disbanded. And I think it was Cap who said, like, we can't even meet for lunch. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> like, wow. And they mentioned, they bring up a really cool quote. I, I forget, but they asked, like, would this crusade have even been won if not for Mary Jane deciding to become a spokesperson for Spider-Man and for clearing his name? You know, because it wasn't, oh, we didn't really talk about it much, but it's Craven in Spidey's costume, just killing people. And so people thought, oh, what if it was Spidey the whole time? And she's determined to clear his name. But they imply that it kind of makes things worse by her doing that. But you got to be able to to empathize with that. Like, who wouldn't want their loved one's name to be cleared for this kind of stuff? Yeah. The emergence of Cap, Human Torch, and Daredevil kind of taking the charge here. There's just something about that that I really love. With the Human Torch and Daredevil specifically, it feels like they have that connection to Spidey. It almost feels more personal. And Cap is there almost in this way because he's a leader, because he has to be. It's one of those things that taps like so beautifully into the cross-section between these superheroes being superheroes and them having personal interests and investments and an emotional investment, not just in like the people they're saving, but in their fellow heroes. That was kind of at large the standout memorable thing for me. I think that's something I think about often in a bunch of different stories that I really particularly loved right here. Nice. I often wonder how they decide which other heroes are going to kind of pop up and be a part of it or other villains. And that was kind of answered for me in this one. Human Torch is like, Spidey, remember, like we used to hang out, you know, and then we get some editor's notes of like at the same time in this amazing Spider-Man, they're hanging out. So I like the continuity of it, you know, like even though it's a complete side story, we're like, no, 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 it's still the same time period. And if you are reading Amazing, you'll know that these guys have been hanging out, you know? So I like that. Very um, good dedication to the gimmick there. <laughs> Hell yeah. Raheem, thank you for being here. For our listeners who want to check out Megaran, where should they go? Like, what's the starter pack for Megaran that you want people to check out? The starter pack. You can go to MegaranMusic.com. It has a list of albums, but the very first one is our newest release, which is Black Materia, the remake which came out in January, which is a love letter to one of my favorite games of all time, Final Fantasy VII. So you should get that. And uh, anything else, you can find me on the Twitter at Megaran. It looks like Meg Ryan when you're looking at it real quickly <laughs> and not paying attention because there's a capital R, capital M, but, but it's not. <laughs> but yeah, I do weekly freestyles on YouTube. Just search Megaran Freestyle Friday for those. And I am anywhere on the internet. Just find me at Mega Rand. There you go. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thanks, y'all. Peace. Thanks again to Mega Rand. Such a delight to read any what-if issue. So it is so much fun to dive into it and read them with somebody who really knows their stuff like Mega Rand. Hell yeah. That's a wrap for us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. 
Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis audio development manager. And I know everyone out there is thinking, what if Brad Barton was Spider-Man? Brad Barton does have a superhero look about him. Brad compliment. Hashtag Brad compliment. Yeah, Brad compliment. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe.